when we hear the word imposter syndrome or we feel it, the first thing we want to do is get rid of it. That's the problem. Because imposter syndrome, actually, when you look at it, is a helpful thing. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Stay Hungry podcast. Today, we're talking about rethinking imposter syndrome with Dean Leake. Dean, I should have warned you about the music. Sorry. That really took me by surprise. I feel like this has now elevated my expectations around this podcast. Not sure if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> a compliment. How are you doing anyway? I'm doing really well, thank you. I'm doing really well. Had a good start to the week, great weekends, playing around with my uh, daughter. And uh, yeah, start the week good. What about you? Yeah, all right, thank you. Yeah, uh, cards on the table. A new webcam showed up about 15 minutes before we got going. And so we've been panicking like mad, thinking this is a good opportunity to test it out. So, um, for the uninitiated, who's Dean Leake? Good question. Um, so, I've spent most of my life up until the last couple of years ago um, working in elite sport. So, I was really blessed to work with athletes, coaches, leaders, supporting them to be the best that they could possibly be. So I've worked across a number of different Olympic and Paralympic sports, um, mostly um, helping them build mental skills. So how do you, you know, sort of rewire your mind and your brain to optimally perform to reach your potential um, and win medals for Great Britain? And then it was, um, I guess, a couple of years into my career that I took a weird side turn and ended up going down more sort of management and leadership role. So my job was working with... um, coaches and sports scientists and administrators around the country to figure out a way in which we can create an environment for people to thrive. Um, And my job was to ensure that we were, you know, creating um, the right programs, putting the right people in the right places to ensure that we, um, you know, gave people the opportunity to perform to the best of their ability, win medals for the country. And um, I'm now applying that knowledge um, from sport into the world of um, business, whether it be small companies or, um, you know, corporate companies to help them figure out how do you create healthy performance culture? How do you create high performing teams? How do you, you know, enable leaders to lead effectively? So, yeah, kind of playing around with that at the moment. Running a small business myself, I imagine um, when you approach a business and say, look, I'm I'm a performance specialist, I'll help you get the most out of your team. That's a weird thing for people to be approached with. Mm. And it's, um, I find it really difficult as well because I have to really try and articulate the, the, the message in a way so it's understandable. Um, and I, it sounds a bit weird, but when I go to a company, I, I don't particularly, maybe I should do, have a like recipe of like, if you start working with me, then you're going to have this kind of like end product at the end of it. It's, I mean, I'm sure, as you know, when you work with companies, there's, there's there's nuance there's complexity there's lots of context so i almost like pitched myself as like a performance um i'm trying to solve a performance problem so my job really is because is really being a great investigator to understand like what is the problem they're facing and then try and figure out the best way to support them um and that often looks quite different so um when i talk about what i do um i really struggle to try and articulate it in a really simple way um but yeah effectively it is exactly that it's going what are you trying to solve at the moment and how can we wrap around some support humanizing the environment to help employees to thrive to stay in the company to perform to the best ability as a team yeah yeah no i get that and 
like as as a business, obviously, this is called the Stay Hungry Podcast. We're we're very much about marginal gains, about um, never feeling like you've you've made it. All those all those kind of things. But sometimes when uh, companies approach us for help with marketing, or when I sit down with a group of people in a workshop, or speak from the stage, and I start talking about uh, performance and performance in business and mindset and marginal gains people go a bit cross-eyed why do you think they go cross-eyed i think it's terrifying i think i think when you show a mirror to someone or shine a light on them and say yeah you're doing really well but you're at 70 percent and you could be at 90 percent that can be really scary and marginal games as you know something that really came through sport and it came out of british cycling um and i think if it's not caveated in the right way, it actually carries a big risk because it's really misinterpreted. So people think that marginal gains um, is is about figuring out those one percentages and that becomes the thing that you invest all of your money, time and resources in. When actually marginal gains is about doing the basics really well and it's about let's do the 95%, you know, put it in the context of... Um, a company, um, you know, trying to create a high-performing team. Well, um, is everybody clear on the strategy? Do people have clarity of roles and responsibilities? Um, do, do people feel like they belong? Do they feel like that they've got the right pathway in place to excel as a um, as an employee at that company? Do they feel like that they have um, the right um, level of um, support that they can challenge each other and give and receive feedback? It's those things that really matter, whereas they get scared because they're like, well, you know, what, what do you mean by the one percent? Like, what 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 does innovation mean in my world? So I, I totally get that. A simple one that I always sort of use when I when I meet a business is okay. Talk me through your sales process because it's really really important as a marketing company that the the businesses we work with have a sales process. And they start talking me through it, and I and I'm like, okay, at what point are you going to get the process out and show me it? And nine times out of ten, they're like, oh, it, it's not written down. So that, that's not a process then. Well, well and, and that's, I guess, goes back to that point we were talking about earlier, which is I think as human beings, the thing that we crave, so it, almost like stripping this back, you know, looking at imposter syndrome, let's look at how we work as human beings. We want certainty. We like to feel like we're in control. We like safety. We like familiarity. We like comfort. That's how we are wired as human beings, but that isn't how the world works. The world is full of uncertainty, complexity, volatility, uncertainty. Um, and what we need to try and do is find a way to actually thrive within that and accept it um, rather than try and push that away. Because when we do that, that's when we get really stuck. Um, and one of the things to your point there is um, often we have no idea what we're doing. We, we're literally making it up as we go along. When I go into a company and I'm speaking with a Fortune 500 leader, and they're telling me about my prob- their problems they're facing. It, the inner voice in my mind, the imposter voice is going, Dean, you're a fraud. What are you doing around this table? You've got no idea what's going on in this context. Um, you don't know what the solution is. And we're, um, I guess the world is always teaching us that we need to know what's going on. We need to have the right process in place. We need to have like a recipe in place. And they wonder why we feel like a fraud. But when we start to go, actually, it's okay to not know, and therefore my job is to ask and to be an investigator and to figure out what the problem is. 
then we can start to work with that. But when we feel like we need to get it right all the time, which, by the way, is an illusion because that doesn't exist, then that's when we feel like an imposter. That's really interesting. And that's that's so true. I mean, I'm completely comfortable with admitting that probably six out of ten meetings that I walk into, that little voice in my head is going, what are you doing in this room? I, the, the day I met you, I was very much in that mindset. So... Um, I'm walking. Yeah, but we all we like me too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And I think it's about acknowledging that because what and this is at the heart of imposter syndrome. When we hear the word imposter syndrome or we feel it, the first thing we want to do is get rid of it, and that's that's the problem. Okay, because imposter syndrome actually, when you look at it, is a helpful thing, and I often say if you've got imposter syndrome. That's great. Let's harness it. If when people say I don't have it, I'm like, there's a red flag here. I love that. It's really interesting. So um, one of our team was struggling with kind of work based anxiety and um, getting quite het up and wound up about about what they were doing. And and I said, well, why why don't you look at this the other way around? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, isn't it really good that you care this much? And they were like yeah i suppose it is and i was like do you think perhaps you're good at your job because you care this much yeah i suppose i suppose i do and and i was like is what we do life or death no so could you leave that care at the door when you leave at six o'clock in an evening yeah i suppose i could but without that level of anxiety they would be nowhere near as good at their job as they are yeah and, and that's a great way to reframe it is, you know, pressure is a privilege. And actually, the fact that you care is a great thing. Let's leverage that. Um, and that's why I think, you know, this this kind of narrative that really sits in society, which is you see it on social media all the time. You know, you hear people saying, you know, I worry about what people think, which is a massive symptom of imposter syndrome or I feel like a fraud. And then you get all of these kind of um, coaches and, and and people shouting that, you know, you need to stop worrying about what people think. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, we, we can't do that because as humans, our natural um, instinct is to want to belong. So we naturally do care and we do worry about what people think. And, and actually, that's for good reason, because if we didn't, we wouldn't live. We wouldn't survive. Yeah, it would be awful for a marketing company to not worry about what people think. You know, our, our whole job is to kind of work with what people think. So. Well, it, well, exactly that. And, and And I think it's about how do we... How do we start to harness that and accept it um, as the starting point for then like you and I going, well, what is it that I want and how do I want to be? Because that's what's really important here. That imposter voice isn't going anywhere. I, I was in a um, I was delivering a workshop last week um, with a senior um, leader, um, Fortune 100 company, and the senior leader came on and she said, um, I've worked as a chief officer in X amount of roles. Um, I'm a professor in two universities. I've got this amount of degrees and I still feel like an imposter. Um, And I'm like, that's the point. You know, people that actually have more experience in life still feel like an imposter because the more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're operating a high level athlete, high level business person, uh, you know, charity work on the front line every day you're encountering things you've never encountered before so of course you feel out of your comfort zone 
you should. Yeah, and you sh- and you should not to know what you're doing because if you think that you do, that's where the danger comes, right? Because then you get complacent, you might get a bit arrogant, a bit overconfident. Um, so it's not your job to know. You know, that's why imposter syndrome is fascinating because it can be experienced by a student that's really limited experience or a professor who is a genuine expert who's sitting there going, I'm going to get found out at any moment. You know, that's what makes it so complex. That's fascinating. So give me an example of um, how you can help people with this where they're almost frozen in their fear because maybe they've reached a point in their career where it, it really is quite uncomfortable and they can't shut the voice up. I think it's always good to start with like what what is imposter syndrome. So, you know, if we look at the broad term, it's a psychological pattern um, that causes an overwhelming feeling of inadequacy. So it's a real subset of self-doubt. Um, and the typical narrative that you will hear when people are describing imposter syndrome is, um, I don't feel like I'm good enough. Um, I feel like a fraud. I feel like a fake. I worry about what people think. And as we'll get onto, it isn't like most of these things, the feelings or the thoughts that causes us the suffering. It's what we do with the feelings and thoughts that causes us the, the pain that we experience. And what I mean by pain is the behaviours that don't serve us, which typically with people in, with imposter syndrome is avoidance behaviour, um, is um, doing the opposite of the very thing that you want to be doing, like giving your opinion um, in a work meeting, having a difficult conversation, asking for a pay rise, um, reaching out to somebody on LinkedIn to make a connection. We end up not doing those things because the inner voice, this inner imposter says, hang on a minute, you're going to get found out. Do you really want to be doing this? So it's that constant natter. And um, I often describe imposter syndrome in terms of the behavior in five different characters. Would it be helpful if I just quickly go through those? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the the sort of five behaviors, and by the way, you you might be one character, you might be all five, and and I definitely feel myself being in the all five category. Um, And the five characters are the workaholic, the lucky charm, the chameleon, um, the con artist, and the procrastinator. So, for instance, the the workaholic um, is somebody who... Um, works more than they need to to um, achieve near perfect results um, never thinks that it's good enough always works longer to achieve that perfection but by doing so gets burned out and really stressed so the only way for success is to keep on working hard um, and the, the end product is then a, um, I guess a cycle of the, the reason why you achieve that success is because you worked every hour in the day um, the lucky charm which is something that I really resonate with which is um, you attribute everything in life down to luck. So right place, right time. Um, as a result, you worry that your luck's going to run out. So you end up taking less risks. Um, and it's that general feeling of, you know, being a fraud. Chameleon. Again, this is probably the most prominent one, which is this, um, I guess, strive really to fit in. So in order to ensure that you fit in and you don't get rejected by a group, you become a chameleon. So you um, almost like blend in with your environments, which isn't particularly great because you end up never being your authentic self. And because you worry about what people think and you're always comparing yourself to others, um, you know, that means that you're not living the life that you want to be living, living it in accordance to other people. And it reminds me of 
my favorite quote of all time that I think really sums up human beings, which is, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Which is super powerful because it's right. We don't live our life in accordance to what we want. We live it in accordance to our perceptions of what we think other people think about us. Um, so when you can break free of that, you know, that's really powerful. Um, the fourth one is is the con artist. Again, this is where you just think you're a trickster. You think that you're frauds, that you've got to where you are out of charm. So you don't really credit yourself for the experience and hard work that you put into, you know, into your life so far. And then the fifth one, um, procrastination, which I'm sure that we can all resonate with, which is this um, real, I guess, paradox in the sense that we might be um, panicking about a presentation coming up. It might be that you've got a podcast um, appearance coming and you're worried that you're not going to do a good enough job. Um, And what happens is you keep on delaying the preparation for that because the feeling that you're experiencing in the moment is really overbearing. Uh, You end up in this cycle of procrastination, doing it last minute. And then you go and do it and it's it's gone great. And then your brain remembers that and, and goes, well, yeah, you did it great last time, last minute, but it's caused a huge amount of stress along the way. So there are five characters that are quite typical. Um, and, and then I guess it's about kind of really at the heart of this is, is being aware of that. And I say to people, there's you, which is what you want. And then there's the imposter character. How do you create space from the imposter character so that you can spend more of your life doing what you want? Yeah, that's so powerful. So something you mentioned earlier in the podcast about uh, coaches and mentors saying to people, you need to stop caring about what people think really goes hand in hand with that chameleon type character where I think as you know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are small business owners and when you start in business, you very much think that there's a certain way you have to behave and there's certain types of clothes you have to wear. And there's um, a type of British professionalism that you have to adhere to. And then as you start to become a bit more successful and a bit more comfortable in your own skin, you start to realise that a lot of that is nonsense. And actually the, the high flyers and the big game players never played that game in the first place. And then you the misconception can then be, and those people don't care what people think, and that's not true. They do care what people think. It's just they decide how much emotion and how much energy they attach to that opinion. Yeah, 100%. It's a really good observation. People want to be heard, right? Like, the fundamental thing that human beings want. We want to be heard. We want to feel like that we are being listened to so i always talk about the greatest super strength that people with imposter syndrome have um are the characteristics that um they experience on a day-to-day basis and what i mean by that is um things like empathy listening um asking good questions being present in the moment and when you display that um that's where you start to build relationships that's where you start to like win contracts or you know get the sales that you want because you are you're bit you're being yourself because most of the time we're just trying to push this, these characteristics that we don't like, you know, imposter syndrome, we need to get rid of it. Why would we want to get rid of the fact that we're really humble, that we're really kind, that we're empathetic, we're emotionally intelligent? Rather than trying to get rid of it, why, why don't we actually like harness it and make that our super, super strength? Yeah, yeah. And I think imposter syndrome can do that 
it can play with your head and do that thing of like, oh, nice guys always come last. That kind of like, it'll be like, oh, because you were nice, that's why that person burnt you. It's like, no, that person burns people whether they're nice or not. The most, the most impressive people that I've come across um, are the ones that are genuinely present in the moment um, and um, are, you know, sometimes just very kind, um, like affable people, people that have that warmthness about them. However, are extremely assertive at the same time. But they're doing it in a way in which is authentic to them. Often when people are being unreasonable, like you just described, it's born out of insecurity, born out of the fact that they're trying to impress. That's that's fascinating, obviously, because you've you've spent time with what people who the man on the street would consider extremely successful in sport, in business, whatever whatever it might be. And it's interesting that your take on that is that the most impressive ones were the ones that were present and kind in the moment. Because I don't think many people would believe that. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've been very lucky to have been mentored myself by awesome people. Um, you know, I, for years, was mentored by a guy called Professor Steve Peters, who wrote The Gym Paradox. Um, he had a big, profound impact on my life. Um, and um, more recently, when I was in the leadership role in sport, a guy called um, David Hopley, who was the ex-head of the Special Forces, uh, and I went to meet him for lunch at the um, Special Forces HQ in London once. And um, it was my first meeting with him. And I and I had this kind of like image in my mind of what this guy was going to be like. And I thought like arrogant. Um, militant. You know, militant. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything that you would see in like the SAS who dares wins type um, kind of program, like an Ant Middleton type guy. Um, and um, honestly, the opposite. Like he was extremely warm. Like I felt like I could open up, be vulnerable. Um, he he was just incredibly um, graceful in in every way. And he said something to me which always stuck with me. He said, "Dean, leadership is all about how you make people feel." I was like, "That's come from like the guy that like kills people for a living." <laughs> exactly. Um, and therefore, like as a result of that, he's an incredible negotiator because like. He's just in the moment. He wants to understand you, wants to understand your world about my family. That's how you build relationships and get business. That, not like, by that like powerful negotiation question of like, what can we do right now to make this a win for you, a win for me and a win for the universe? And when you meet when you meet people who can do that authentically, that I mean, they're really dangerous because they're, they're so they're so successful. You have this yourself. Like, you know, I remember when we first met, um, at that event and again like you you didn't come over and you know nick obviously introduced you to me and it's like you know joel's really helped um you know with the business but you didn't come over and you know try and impose any sales or like business on me and you've never done that to date at all but you would just really i'd normally do that after the podcast i'll expect that in 10 minutes um no no but just genuine curiosity Mm. Um, and you know just almost like if I can help at any stage and that's a lovely invitation because I'll remember that I I will immediately forget somebody who's like trying to sell something in in the first 10 seconds oh the most disgusting thing and um well one of my mentors does this and and I've told him I don't like it but he will let's say he was in marketing he's not but he would say so what's going well in your marketing right now as an opener Ugh. Ugh. just 
Like, no. I was going to right now. I'd imagine uh, if you bumped into me on that day. I mean, we were in a, a lovely hotel. We'd been to a launch event. And if you watched me in the room, every person I spoke to for the very first time, I said, what's going well for you in your marketing right now? Ugh, it makes me feel sick. Well, well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, um, and, and I guess that, I, I bet that person isn't being authentic either. I bet that's probably something that he feels like, um, you know, he needs to do. You know, maybe it's coming from a place of, you know, human beings are good at the end of the day, but we've often learned things from, you know, situations or people that we think is going to, you know, um, get us what we want, but actually it's um, it's not doing us any favours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I th- you know, part of the, the joy of business and, and being fortunate enough to be in powerful rooms and meet interesting people is to remain curious. And so, it's that, and, and sp- especially when you're suffering with imposter syndrome, when you're in a room where maybe you feel like you don't deserve to be there or maybe you're just feeling socially uncomfortable, Ask people about them. It takes the pressure off you. Get curious, ask questions. That's, that's how I always coped with um, imposter syndrome. So I suffered with it for, you know, for years. I still experience it, but I don't suffer with it anymore. I used to suffer with it because I wanted to fight it away and get rid of it and change it. But now I embrace it and use it by asking questions, getting curious. And um, my, um, my favorite fr- phrase around this is um, the greatest antidote to imposter syndrome is courage. So often we, wait to feel ready to do things so i'll i'll speak to somebody when i feel ready well we know that feeling ready is never going to happen because feelings are so um temporary and they move all the time so actually how do we how do we lean into that feeling of discomfort accept it and then choose to take action despite what you feel yeah the feel the fear and do it anyway type thing yeah and i mean for me when I'm in that scenario, I always take myself to, well, what's the worst that could possibly happen? So if I, you know, I'm being introduced to somebody in a, in a environment like we were in, I guess the worst that could possibly happen is that person ignores me. Well, that's no different to the situation I'm in right now where I'm not talking to them. So what's to lose? What, what's to lose? Yeah. And, and, you know, how many times do you um, approach that person and it ends up going badly? Yeah, very rarely. Very rarely. Um, so, you know, imposter syndrome can either go two ways. It's something that we can either thrive with or it can we suffer with it. And it's a choice. Like we're, we're, we are ultimately um, in a position of responsibility to choose how we want to respond to our own feelings. Because when I say to people, like, do you want that voice of self-doubt? You know, most people will say no, which goes some way to demonstrate that we actually have no choice over it. You know, there's that famous bit of research by, is it Dr. Jill Bolte? Um, I guess it's, I'll ask you the question. It would be good to um, have a little question on this. So um, when you have an emotion, you have that physical feeling within you, how long do you think it takes for the emotion to dissipate or exit the body? So I see, I'm, I'm a bit deeper than you probably probably know. So I, I would say for me, maybe like 36 hours. Okay. So um, I'm intrigued when you said you're a bit deeper than I expected. I'd love to. Um... Yeah, I, I, I'm complete open book. So I've had a lot of therapy. Um, I, I've had severe anxiety and depression based, on, based out of trauma. Um, and one of the big game changers for me, which I think is where this conversation might be heading, is 
knowing I'm always in choice. So how much energy and emotion I attach to things is my choice, even when those things are horrendous or even when those things are brilliant. And I've learned that I'm more successful when I keep my emotions in check, whether that's uh, positive or negative emotions. Yeah. So you would love, um, if you haven't already read it, it's similar to sort of like Jungian psychology, but a guy called Alfred Adler. So he's, um, it's called Alderian psychology. Highly recommend. There's a book called um, The Courage to be Disliked. Great book. Um, but the actual research, going back to the emotion, which is staggering, um, it actually takes scientifically at a chemical level, uh, chemical levels, 90 seconds for an emotion to exit the body. The only reason if it stays in the body is because it's the thing that we're doing that prevents it from doing so. I say that um, the, what we're doing to prevent it is things like what I would call like cognitive fusion. It came out of um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is this idea of that we have an uncomfortable thought. And what we try to do is change it, stop it, fight it. And we end up dancing with the thought and then we're stuck with it for hours, just, just letting it go by cognitive diffusion, which is things like rather than listening to your thoughts, become the observer of your thoughts. Um, you know, exercising how you feel by talking or writing stuff down, all these type of techniques that we can use. So, um I mean, naturally, we hold on to emotions a lot longer, of course, because we're human beings. But actually, chemically, um, it's the process is a lot quicker. Ninety seconds. So, so thirty-six hours is pretty good for me because it used to be like thirty-six weeks. So, <laughs> people have thirty-six years. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it's really interesting. So, like little techniques I use for, for exactly what you said, and um, when I've explained it to my my wife in the past, it's about giving myself a bird's eye view on my thoughts. So. Um, I'll do really odd things, like I'll listen to the kettle boil, because it makes me present again. It takes me away, takes me away from the thought, and I'm just enjoying the moment. Or I'll get really invested in a story someone's telling, even though I've heard it a hundred times before, because it's better for me. Yeah, well, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's um, it's being present in the moment, um, and you know connecting with things whether it's your body or whether it's sounds or whether it's story it's a really good example but yeah no thanks for sharing that because it's again like this is why it's great to connect on these podcasts because like i didn't know that about you and um clearly you've got you know you've got some amazing lived experience um but also like techniques that you can use and share with others that are going to help them with their mental health yeah yeah hugely and that's why i share it um i'm kind of uh there's no polite way. I'm anti-pity party. So you'll never see me put it on LinkedIn and then try and grab a load of uh, engagement just for, oh, well, this was difficult and aren't I great. But if I can say something along the lines of, look, I've, I've been to some dark places and simply by listening to the kettle boil, it really helped. If that helps one person, that was a great thing to say. And um, a lot of the stay hungry mantra come, is, is born out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it starts with vulnerability, doesn't it? When you when you're vulnerable and you share, um, it creates this emotion in somebody else that wants to um, like listen, you know, help, but also they'll take something from that. It's a, it's a it's a nice metaphor. That's how we learn, isn't it, as human beings? Yeah, and and like you know, I'm I'm nowhere near as successful in inverted commas as as I want to be yet, but I am on a platform, and so. If I can show vulnerability, it just gives people a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on what 
on what reality is. Not, you know, it's not all sports cars and hotels. It's mm-hmm. and it depends on what, how you define success. Yeah, for sure. You know, because for me, what would be more important is: Are you um, living your life in accordance to your values? You know, and actually doing things that matter to you. Um, because again, this is a classic thing in imposter syndrome. Work with so many athletes and people in different industries who chase this thing called success and they'll put an outcome to it and then they either get there and they succeed and then they go oh i thought i was going to be happy oh yeah yeah yeah. i feel worse or if they don't achieve it then they set themselves up for a a fail or a cycle of despair i've got to start again but this all on i see i i talk about values not goals so actually see life as a journey where you're constantly just chipping away, moving in a direction towards something that, you know, feels important to you, knowing that you're going to come across hurdles and barriers and, you know, failures along the way. But it's about how do you get back up on it and keep going. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think a lot of high performers listening to this will really resonate with the idea of, well, I achieved a goal that I wanted to achieve for 20 years. And when I got there, I just didn't really feel anything. Yeah, post-Olympic depression is quite a common thing. Because you wrap up your whole and naturally your whole identity in achieving this material thing, get there, and then you have this sense of like feeling empty. And you haven't absorbed the journey on the way because you've been so focused on the goal. And if you've been so focused on the goal, yeah. Yeah. That's that's really fascinating. So this is a weird thing to bring up, but um I reckon it'll be on your radar and it's very current. Uh a boxing match got cancelled at the weekend. Um so Conor Ben was going to fight Chris Eubank Jr. And speaking of being values-led versus goal-led, potentially, not not definitely, potentially Conor Ben was cheating and using performance-enhancing drugs, potentially. I keep saying that. Um, discuss. <laughs> I love the fact that you keep saying potentially because I'll also say... I have no context, don't know any of the characters that well, don't know Eddie Hearn personally. Um, I, you know, I love boxing, but it's it's difficult because we don't have the full facts, do we? We don't have all the information available to us. I mean, I don't know whether he's actually, I mean, has he actually been done for, it, it, was, a, it was one test. The UK Board of Control used a certain testing agency and then voluntarily, and it was actually Conor Ben that put it into the contracts, they allowed VADA to come and test them as well throughout the process. And he failed a VADA test at the end of August, which they'd kept under wraps in the hope that there would be a B sample and things would just carry on. Obviously, there's a lot of money tied up in in the situation. Um, But he's failed for um, what I understand is what normally a drug women take as a fertility treatment, but it's sometimes male athletes take it to disguise spikes in testosterone. I would I, like the, I think perhaps my one comment, and again without having all the, I, I've thrown you under the bus here. It's like no, no, no. My my only sort of like comment would be, if he's failed a drugs test, and then the British Board of Boxing Control are saying we don't advocate this fight, and then promoters are coming out and saying, but we still want to make the fight happen because you know there's. You know, there's vested interests of money, et cetera, et cetera. 
I I would be wondering whether coming out and making that statement is something that he'll reflect on. There's maybe something that he wouldn't do again. That's that's where I'm at with it. Is it's not values led. Yeah, that's a very um, goal led statement, and and ultimately, and I, 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 I hope I black and white about lots of these things. So you know, uh, you know, you take the the Saudi Arabia situation, you know, with, with the World Cup, and if you take quite a binary view, that you'll be like, well, it's just a disgrace because you know we're advocating you know human right, uh, the horrible human right things that are going on out there. But then there's, the, I think there's a bit more nuance and context and and color in this, and you know, there's an argument to say, well. You know, are there opportunities to ensure that we are at the table, therefore, and shine a light on this, even more so saying it's unacceptable and what diplomatic change can be brought about? And I I, I used to be in a black and white kind of like when you're a bit younger, it's all binary. Like, what's the what's the kind of complexity here a little bit? Yeah, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think I think Qatar is a strange place to host a World Cup in terms of. Uh, yeah, um, in terms of the amount of stadiums they need for a country that won't then be able to sustain the requirement for those stadiums moving forward. Um, I think that's odd and suspect that that's to do with set blatter and corruption. And, but that's a different thing to the whole um, sport washing argument of, well, these people are bad. Therefore, why should they be allowed to, it's like, well, hang on. If we painted everybody with that brush, I think we'd probably struggle to host a lot of sporting events in our own country, let alone. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think particularly sport is is often an opportunity to create discussion where otherwise there wouldn't be discussion. It's a sport is a what do they call it? Is it like sport is a like microcosm of society, isn't it? Yeah, um, and that's why it's powerful for change, and that's why you know, sport is a political weapon because they know that by shining light on these big events allows you to speak to your values as a country. Yeah, hugely. And even like on a really basic level, just the amount of people that will travel there that would have otherwise never travelled there and meet the people and start to understand the culture and get a feel for it, that that's a good thing. Wow, we've gone all over the place on this. No, I didn't, I didn't see that coming, but hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm up for that. We got. I've got two more questions for you. I ask every guest these questions. First question is, what's the best mistake you've ever made? So um, I'll try and be really quick with this story. Um, when I was um, in the height of my sort of leadership role in sport, I was on this program called Future Leaders. And essentially, the program was a two-year program, and um, it was about catapulting you to being ahead of a sport. So I was up until this point, being driven massively by imposter syndrome. So, you know, my teacher at school said to me, you know, Dean, you'd, you'd never make it to university. You're just never going to get the grades. And like that, um, that comment played out a character in my mind, which is that I needed to prove this guy wrong. So I constantly was pushing for more. Um, I turned up for the first session um, at a workshop called Horse Whispering. Okay. Um, and this is the point where a horse, by the way, became my best mentor I've ever had. And what happened was I turned up, I was amongst 10 other um, candidates, um, brilliant people, um, a bit older than me, a lot more experienced. And I just had this like real overwhelming sense of imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. Like, have they picked me by mistake? Like, why me? Um, they've got way more experience, just re- really anxious. And they said to us, um, 
guys, we just want you to go down to the stables. There's 10 of you. There's 10 horses. And all we want you to do is choose a horse. They'll come over to you. And we just want you to be really present in the moment. So you're hearing this and you're thinking, are they joking? Like, is this like some wind up? And, and also like what's horses got to do with leadership? Um, so we end up walking down there and I see a horse um, that's being really playful, like he's being really flirty. And I'm thinking, this is definitely my guy. Like, I need to try and make a connection here. And this horse comes over and um, starts um, basically, you know, interacting with me. I start stroking um, his head. Um, I feel like I'm nailing this. I've, you know, nailed the task. I'm going to excel on this course. Um, start stroking the, the horse even more. He starts sniffing my arm. So I'm like, cool, like really engaging here. Started like stroking even more. And then all of a sudden he like took a massive bite out of my arm um, and like really gripped onto it and really bit it. So I kind of like shrugged him off. Um, the horse that was called Levi ended up running away. The instructor came running over and said, Dean, what happened? Um, I explained. And he said, that's never happened before. So now I'm like, oh, my God, I'm even more of a fake. Like I've just managed to make a horse bite me. And it's never happened before. Um, and we went into the middle to do a debrief. And the instructor said, Dean, it's a great learning opportunity to figure out what happened here. Um, so I explained how Levi was gently biting me, sniffling me, nibbling me, and then he bit me. And he turned around to me and he said, Dean, why didn't you hit Levi around the head when he started sniffing your arm? And as soon as he said that, I like had a total breakdown. I started crying, like almost like a trauma kind of um, response. Um, and the first thing that came to mind was that I had no boundaries. And the reason why that came to mind. So, you know, if you look at the situation, basically like I let the horse bite me because he was sniffling and nibbling and he was getting more and more aggressive. And then more and more confident, essentially. Yeah. Confident. So that was the metaphor. But up until that um, point in life, I spent all of my energy worrying about what people were thinking about me, um, caring too much about what people thought, um, not having a sense of who I am. So the biggest mistake that I ever made was, um, was not spending enough time being present in the moment um, because that's why fundamentally horses respond like that is because they recognize when you're not present and when you're not present, you're up here in your head. Um, so I just didn't um, get a grip with myself and put them, um, put the time and resources into investing in my own mental health because I was too focused on helping other people. Um, so that was a very long um, rounded way of saying that um, that was the biggest mistake that I made, which was getting bitten by a horse, but that led to the biggest change I've ever seen in me. No one's ever answered that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would hope that nobody else has been bitten by a horse, but it's one of those where, you know, was it a mistake? No, but it was a big lesson. Like it was a big lesson to, to stop pushing away, um, you know, these feelings and thoughts that I'm experiencing and actually start to, get a grip with it in the sense of like accepting it and harnessing it. the biggest thing that came out of it was me figuring out what my values were because if I didn't have values I therefore can't have boundaries yeah 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 and and that sort of comes hand in hand with self-worth that once you understand your own values and build up a sense of self-worth then sometimes it's okay to say no or sometimes it's okay to keep someone at arm's length or a horse at arm's length or whatever it, yeah I love that this one's an easy one, maybe. What's your favourite film and why? I don't know if it's going to be my favourite, but I'll go with what has just come to mind, otherwise we could be here for a while. But I loved Remember the Titans. Yes, Dean! 
Yes. So I I don't say that as my favorite film, but it's up there. Denzel Washington and uh, a black school and a white school being combined to um, and an American football team in amongst it all. And Mar- Marvin Gaye uh, music all the way through. Yeah, there is a lot of Marvin Gaye because Sunshine likes Marvin Gaye. <laughs> See, I do know this film. It's a story of like you know togetherness and um, you know inequalities and leadership and you know self doubt all wrapped into one. It's just a feel good story. Yeah, and there's a scene in that film for anyone in business or sport uh, where Denzel Washington takes the team to the the site of the Battle of Gettysburg, and he delivers like a, a speech. It is, oh, I love I love your reaction. You're like, yeah, there's somebody with me. Yeah, well. Uh, no one's ever seen it, let alone says it's their favourite. Because it's kind of it's it's a it's a Disney film, which no is weird because it's not very Disney like, and um, it's pretty under the radar in the UK because it's about American football. So. What's your um, what's yours? Uh, it's called A Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, um, uh, what's his name? The guy, the most handsome guy in the world. Ryan Gosling and Bradley Cooper are in it. Yeah, so they're having like a handsome off in it. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's about, um, this will give you some insight. The first half of the film is about two fathers and the second half of the film is about two sons and how the first half and the actions in the first half impact the second half. So I'm really bought into it. It's actually a very slow film. Most people that watch it get bored, but I like it. So. Yeah, good to go. Nice. So I could talk to you all day. You've been, a, you've been an awesome guest. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, you can get me on um, Instagram at um, Dean Leak Coach, or my website is accelerateco.com. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of normally hanging around kind of most social media platforms. Um, so uh, yeah, email Dean at the Mindset Program, program with one M.org. Awesome. Thanks for being a wicked guest.